Amen. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we we think of the passage in Jeremiah 31.3. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Lord, thank you so much for loving us. Lord, that your love never will never cease. Uh, Lord, you have loved us, uh, Lord, uh, with eternal love, and we just want to say thank you. Lord, this morning as I was reading that, it reminded me that, uh, uh, Lord, uh, your love never fails. It never gives up. Uh, Lord, your love never changes. We just want to say thank you, God, for loving us, God, for moving in our hearts and minds. Lord, we lift up, uh, Lord, uh, this church. God, we, we thank you for it. God, we just thank you for this family, this body. Uh, God, I just want to say thank you for dads. Lord, thank you so much uh, for, uh, for fathers. Uh, Lord, we just ask that you would bless each and every one of them. Lord, as we maybe spend time with them today, Lord, as we fellowship even after the service today, God, we just ask that you would bless our dads. God, thank you so much uh, for them. Uh, Lord God, we, we come before you as our eternal father. Lord, we look forward to that day when, uh, Lord, we, your body, will live with you forever and ever. God, that, that you will reign. God, that you will be our God, that, that, that you will dwell in our midst and be with us. God, we just look forward to that day. Um, Lord, we pray uh, for our country. Lord, we pray that you would uh, just bind people together, God, that you would call people to yourself, call people to Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for salvation. Lord, we ask that you would use us as your ambassadors, Lord Jesus, to reach our neighbors for Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that this church would be a lighthouse. God, that it would be a place of refuge, a place of hope, eternal hope, God. God, we, we ask, Lord, that you would forgive us for taking things for granted. Lord, for setting you aside so often. Lord, we just pray that you would clear our hearts, cleanse us. Lord, cleanse us from all unrighteousness as you have promised that you would do so, Father. God, thank you. Lord, we love you and we ask these things in Jesus' wonderful and precious name. Amen. Remain standing as uh, Daryl reads Psalm 67. Beautiful psalm. It's on page 3569 in the Bible. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the people praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Amen. You may be seated. And today we continue with Catechism of Question 48. What is the church? And let's answer this together. God chooses and preserves for himself a community elected to eternal life and united by faith to love, follow, learn from and worship God together. God sends out his community to proclaim the gospel and prefigure Christ's kingdom by the quality of their life together and their love for one another. And the short answer is, let's read this together as well. A community elected for eternal life and united by faith to love, follow, learn from, and worship God together. And the key verse is Romans 12, 4 through 8. And I will read this. For as when one body, we have many members. And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, 
are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. Good morning, Lord. We thank you for gathering us together so that we can corporately hear what you have to say. We ask your blessing on our hearts and minds, and we take great joy that we get to gather. And there's others in the rest of the world can't. Please free them, Lord, and uh, free us today, too, with your wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I think I'm on, yeah, I am, good. Now if I can see, we'll be on our way. Lane, would you pull up the shorter catechism question, or answer, I mean. What is the church? There we go. That's the long one, but we'll use it. God chooses and preserves for himself a community elected to eternal life and united by faith who love, follow, learn from, and worship God together. And no, that's not the longer one. <laughs> it just looks longer on the board when I'm looking back. So we are a community elected for eternal life and united by faith. We've um, been spending these weeks since Pentecost Sunday, the first Sunday of this month, talking about the church and looking at various aspects of that church. And we're going to continue that plan. Um, it has been and will continue to be our study of God's design in the church. We're going to look at it a con a continually from different perspectives. We're going to repeat a cut, three of those perspectives as the weeks go on because we're going to look at them from different vantage points. The first set of vantage points that we're going to look at and have been looking at are just what is the church and what does it look like? And then the second set of vantage points from which we will look or to which we will look are what does our knowledge of what the church is affect what we do as the church. The first week we talked on Pentecost Sunday and we defined the fact that the church is elected and that it is united. But the most important thing I wanted you to see, am I a little echoey or is it just my own hearing? Thanks. Um, the, the perspective that I really wanted us to see that first week is that the church is not man's idea. It is God's idea. He is the one before the beginning of time who planned it, who designed it, who decided when it would emerge in history. He is the one. It's not our idea. That's a critical thing to remember. If we begin to think it's ours, then we get into all messy things when we start to build cathedrals and all sorts of stuff that really waste a lot of resources and, and consume immense amount of time and really are off task. And then last week we looked at what the church is using the metaphor of a building. And we saw that a this building is made up of living stones that all refer, my wife corrected me, it's not, I use the word referent, it's not referent, it's, thank you, referent, 
pronounced it wrong. It's always been the other way to me. So if I say it again, you'll just have to forgive me. But the church is made up of these living stones, and they all have one point at which they refer. That made it easier. One point at which they refer, and that point is Jesus Christ. It is against the cornerstone of Jesus Christ that the leveling lines are laid. It is against the cornerstone of Jesus Christ that the plumb line is laid. All things are measured by Christ, for Christ, because it's all about Christ. Today, we're going to look at the church as a body. And I hope that you will see this body in a bit different light, maybe, than you had the opportunity to look at it before. And then next week, the, the week I've really been looking forward to most in this series, is we're going to talk about the church as the bride of Christ. And we are going to see her beauty like never before. That is my prayer. So I urge you, if you can suffer through me one more time, come next week and hear about the bride of Christ. During these weeks, I'm using the metaphor or the analogy, anyway, of, of us on a hike. That we're on a hike and we are on this trail to come to a pinnacle, actually three pinnacles. And from those pinnacles, we're going to look down from Christ's perspective upon the church instead of our perspective on the church. We want to see as he sees instead of skewed by our astigmatisms, by our inability to see clearly because of cataracts or the rest, we want to see from Christ's perspective. But each week before we climb, I think it's important that we stop at the trailhead for just a minute and take a look at what we often see as the church. And certainly what the world from outside sees the church to be. You know, when, whenever I go hiking, it, and I'm at the opening part of the trail, the trailhead, I'm often very distressed. Because when I get there, the garbage cans are overflowing. There's, there's outhouses that no human being should ever be allowed to enter. The trees have been cut down, the undergrowth cleared so that there's plenty of room for lots of cars to park, and the trail is very muddy at the beginning. And, it, and I do find it a bit distressing. So too, the church is often viewed at ground level, just like that trailhead. And Lane, if you'll pull, pull up the first slide that I have there. This is how a lot of people see the church. Sick. Anemic. Pull up the second. Or this. A bunch of grumpy old men. Who all they like to do is complain and grump about everything else that's going on around them. And the third lane. Lazy. Kind of fat and happy sleeping it off, the word of God on the floor next to the chair. Not really raising it even to read it. A lot of the world sees us that way. And I think sometimes we buy into those definitions, those visions of what the church is, but they have nothing to do with what the church really is. And I have a last slide. We also often hear that the church is a bit dysfunctional. And while I'll grant you that we are often dysfunctional, from the perspective of Christ, that dysfunction becomes beautiful function. The diversity is beautiful. So that may be how the world sees us, but we're going to now hike a bit. We're going to go to a spot on this mountain where we can peer out at the body 
of Christ from a vantage point of his word. I want you to turn, if you would. Well, before we turn, I want you to remember another key piece of the metaphor that I'm using, this hike idea, is that there's this pair of field glasses that we're taking with us. And those field glasses are the word of God before us and, yes, the spirit of God in us. And yes, you're going to get tested every week until you get it. No. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to read a passage. In fact, in order to really get a view of the church, we're going to look at two different passages today and then a whole bunch of little places in Scripture because there isn't just one place where this, this painting or this uh, vision or perspective of the church can be seen. But here in Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 11, we're going to read through verse 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, but rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, the first thing we see from this perspective is that we see that the beauty of the church is truly unsur unsurpassed. It's more magnificent, really, than anything we've yet seen on our weeks together or on our hikes. It's more beautiful, in fact, than any body that has ever lived. It is magnificent. And why? Why is it so beautiful? What draws our eyes to stare in wonder at this splendor and our mouths to gape open with awe at such magnificence? Now, you may not see it yet, but you're going to. I pray. The thing that makes this body different than any other body you've ever seen, its head. Its head is Christ. That's what makes this body beautiful. That's what makes it, it monumentally magnificent. Just, just gaze in your imagination for a moment. Just gaze into the eyes of Christ. They are gloriously penetrating. They even pierce. The light is so intense. The glory from his face so bright. Yet in that piercing and penetrating reality of his eyes shines a love so pure. Such longing from his eyes for us. Such joyous and inviting light emanates from his eyes. But then look at his lips. Perfectly formed. Perfectly formed. Such beautiful words come from his mouth. mouth such restful peace. Words like, come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are there any more beautiful words coming from such beautiful lips? Oh, and the ears. Not a sound escapes these ears. Not a cry, not a whimper, not a whisper. His word says, call, call 
and I will hear. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Call. 1 Corinthians 2, 8 and 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man even imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. This is what makes the church magnificent. It is Christ as our head. Oh, may God give us eyes to see the light of his eyes. May he give us lips to call upon his name so that we might be saved. And may he give us ears to hear his word as we know he hears ours. Second thing we notice is that this body is a bit odd. Um, it, It isn't at all what we expect. In fact, it's a bit strange. And I'm going to try to explain why the view that we see is a bit strange from what we would expect. This particular body has a lineage that is different from any other lineage, from any other being that has ever lived on this planet, or maybe anywhere else. Rather than beginning its life by the joining of two humans, it began with the joining of the divine eternal one with the finite dying one. That's a lineage worth dying for. That's a family. It is the joining that takes place, Christ and us. That makes up the body of the church. Not exactly what we would expect, but I think, isn't it just like God? It is. He constantly surprises us. Colossians 2, 2 and 3. I want you to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I love mysteries. I do. I like to read them. I like to watch them. I like mysteries. This is the greatest mystery of all. How the divine Christ can be joined to the finite us. It truly is a profound mystery. But how is this joining of the divine with the flesh possible? Well, first, there are two deaths and two resurrections. Remember, I'm talking about the church, all right? Two deaths and two resurrections. The first is Christ's death and resurrection. Without the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, there is no church. He is the first and he is the head. Colossians 1, 18, 19. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he may have the preeminence. Christ is first and will not and does not surrender that preeminence to anyone or anything. He alone is head of the church. No man, no institution, no denomination, no church has the preeminence without Christ being preeminent in it. But then there's a second death and resurrection. And for this, because I think you're probably going to think I'm out of my mind, but for this, Ephesians 2, 1 and 3. And you were dead. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in 
in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, I hope I don't have to convince you any further that you were dead. Without Christ, in fact, you are dead. But with Christ, the important word there is were dead. Now, if you're dead, in order not to be dead anymore, something has to happen, right? The resurrection. And how are we resurrected? We are raised to new life in Christ. So that is how the divine and the flesh join into the body of Christ. It is through the death and resurrection of Christ, but it is also through the death and resurrection of us. Without our death and resurrection, there is no church. Because the church is made up of people who have been resurrected, joined to Christ. Just, just stop for a minute and think about that. Grasp hold of that reality. There is no church without every one of us who believes in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as there is no church without Christ. That is sobering. And it is exalting that we should be considered who were dead in trespasses and sin, that we should be considered worthy through the blood and body of Jesus Christ. Not because we're worthy, but we are considered worthy by the body and blood of Jesus Christ. That is a magnificent truth. Ephesians 2, 14 and 16. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, before you try to correct me, let me tell you, I understand the context of this passage. Paul is, ta or, yeah, Paul is talking about Jews and Greeks, barbarians and Scythians, or the sophisticates. He's talking about tribes and nations and tongues. But all of those are people. And all of them have had to die to themselves in order to live to Christ. And Christ is the one who has put to death the body of death so that he might raise us to life. He, through the cross, has killed the hostility. Remember the verse, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Let me ask. Are you reconciled to Christ through the cross? I would hope that the majority of us are, but I would also hope there are some of you here that aren't, who will, before this day is out, recognize your need of the Savior. Has the hostility between you and God been reconciled by the blood of Christ? If you're a believer, the answer to that is a hearty yes, an amen, a praise the Lord. If you are not, the only thing that remains for you is the fearful prospect of judgment. But you are not required to stay in that state. In fact, I pray that Christ would call you to himself today.
All right, now I, I want us to really kind of sharpen those glasses and really focus in for a closer look at this body, the Church of Christ. If you remember in the building metaphor that we spoke about last week, we saw that we are all stones, all of us stones, nothing particularly unique. Now, we are living stones. That's kind of unique in itself, but we're that because of Christ. But every stone is just a stone. It has varying colors or textures, that sort of thing. Some of them are different shapes and sizes, but they're still stones. Each stone has the same role and function. Its role is to, and its function is to stay upon the foundation, related to the cornerstone properly, and to build upon one another, to support one another. Every stone supporting the other stones. The layer below, the one that came before us, supporting the current layer being built. All stones, every single one of them. The only stone with any unique characteristics is the stone that is the cornerstone, and that is Christ. The rest of us were all in the same condition. The rest of us had all the same sin. The rest of us had all the same foundation. It is Christ and Christ alone. But from this vantage point, that is the vantage point of the body, we look down and where once laid a pile of disjointed body parts, we now see one body. And let's be clear, this body is not a Frankenstein-type body. It's not a bunch of old parts sewn together in an attempt to make a living body. That's not the body of Christ. And if you have that vision in mind, you need to do some work. Because that ain't right. What's right is that Christ has made us one. We are a new creation. Yes, we each are members of the body of Christ, but we have not been sewn into place. We have been created and birthed into place. We are the body of Christ because of the design of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink the same spirit. It is the taking in through the blood and resurrection of Christ, taking in the spirit of Christ, which is a gift, that we become part of the body of Christ. Ephesians 4.16, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. A disjointed body does not grow. And it certainly expresses no love for the other parts. Colossians 1, 16 to 20. Christ is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might have the preeminence, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of Christ. It is the blood of Christ that flows through our veins as the body of Christ. This joining of these parts is a work of the Spirit of God authorized by God because of the sacrifice of Christ. It is a work of God. But, but, but wait a minute. Uh, as, as we look down, there's, there seems to be something wrong, something amiss. I think we need to go to a different vantage point, if you would. 
in order to figure out what this is that's not quite right. Turn to 1 Corinthians 12, 14 through 24. 1 Corinthians 12, 14 through 24. Now, this is a pretty good-sized passage, and I'm going to start reading even if you're not there yet. So just catch up. 1 Corinthians 12, 14 to 24. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, oh, because I'm not an eye, I, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? As it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? If there are many parts, there are, I'm sorry, I'm if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with the greatest modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. This strange thing that we see is something that's happening to the body that ought not to be happening. It is a tearing apart of the body. It is this promulgated division occurring that has been occurring for a long time. Sometimes we call it denominationalism. Sometimes we call it factions within the church. Sometimes we just ought to recognize it as grumpy old people within the church. Paul puts his finger on the real problem here, though. There are two prevalent things that he talks about. Two perspectives that I think it's critical we understand. And he's speaking this, this entire passage is he's talking to the church at Corinth about the proper use of the gifts they have been given. All right? Thus, his focus upon the different parts of the body. That's the context. And Paul puts his finger on this problem. And it all starts when we take our eyes off of the head, which is Christ, and begin to look at each other. It begins when we start making damaging comparisons. And there are two types of comparison that Paul zeroes in on. And really, 2 Corinthians 10, 12 speaks to it beautifully. And when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves to one another, they are without understanding ignorant, foolish. False comparisons cause division, strife, broken bones, blind eyes, and deaf ears. So here are the two wrong comparisons. The first is that I'm not needed because I'm not just like you. I don't have your giftings. So I'm not really needed. You aren't needed because you aren't me is the other comparison. 
I'm not needed because I'm not you. You're not needed because you're not me. Those are the two. I want to look at the first one. One, the I'm not needed comparison. What this is at its root is false humility. It is false humility. And what it really, really, really is, is an excuse for laziness. Woe to little me. I'm not gifted in this or that. So I'll just sit back and do nothing. It's just the way God made me. I have this to say to that. That is a lie from hell. You have been thrown bait by the enemy and you have swallowed it hook, line, and sinker if you believe that to be true. How can I say this with such strength? 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Remember, you want to identify the lie this enemy is giving you? Go to Scripture, which is truth. And every lie he's ever told, the truth of what is real is disclosed in Scripture. If you're not going to Scripture, you're going to constantly be bound by lies. He whispers in our ears. He works in the dark. He tries to remain unseen and unknown. But the word of God and the eyes of Christ pour light on those lies and we see them for what they are. Listen to this truth that puts the lie to just because I'm not like you, I'm not needed. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. It doesn't say to some are given the manifestations of the Spirit for their own good. It says to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, the health of the body. If you think for a moment that you are not important to the body of Christ and its proper functioning, you are needing truth. And this is the truth that can set you free from that lie. And I have to tell you, there are not a few, even within this body of believers, who are not subject to that lie. I know that may feel harsh. And I know it probably feels a bit too direct. And who the heck do I think I am saying such a thing? I'll tell you who I am in a minute. Then the second line or the second comparison. You aren't needed because I'm better than you are. This one manifests itself in a lot of different ways. But this is the sin of self-importance instead of Christ's preeminence. Self-importance. That is idolatry. There isn't any smoother way I can say that. When anything tries to take or takes, attempts to take the preeminence away from Christ, that is idolatry. Because there is only one God and un only one Lord. And we are commanded to worship him and him alone, not ourselves. The sin of self-importance. It says, I'm so important to the body that the body would die without me, but I can easily get along without any other part of the body. I don't need them. I can be a body all by myself. That, too, is a pernicious lie, and it comes from the same source, the corridors of hell. The truth is what God says. 1 Corinthians 12, 11. This is a marvelous passage. If you have not rolled this passage over and over and over again, you are missing so much. 1 Corinthians 12, 11. And I'm talking about all of 1 Corinthians 12. But 1 Corinthians 12, 11. And all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. What gift do any of us possess that have 
not, has not been given to us. It wouldn't be a gift, people, if it hadn't been given to us. We have no reason whatsoever to ever believe that we are more important than any other part of the body. People say, well, I, I, I can't preach. I can't teach. People say, you can't preach either. But and the others say, you know, I, I, I can't do this, and I can't do that. And I don't have X, Y, or Z gift, so I'm not as valuable. Or I have X, Y, and Z gift, so I'm really valuable. All of that is a lie from hell. There is a cure, though. We don't have to stay there. The cure is very simple. It's the same cure that brought us from death to life. And it is the confession of our sin. It is the repentance from our sin. And it is the taking on of the truth of God. That is the remedy. It's an interesting pharmacy, really. There's only one remedy in the pharmacy. For all that ills us, only one. And it is Christ. Christ as revealed in his word. You know, only as each part of the body understands its own critical role, however small or weak or in Paul's words, less presentable, it may appear. In order for the body to truly be helpful, every one of us who are believers, every single one of us who are believers have a gift given to us for the common good. We are very diverse in our giftings, and in our functions. But we are all unified, joined together by Christ, into Christ, for Christ. Not every part of the body provides the same function as the other parts of the body. We'd look and not function very well if everybody was hands. And we had no feet, and no eyes, and no ears, no tongues, nor, to nor torso, or heart, or liver, or kidneys. I can go on, but it might be a little too gross, so we won't. No part of the body can provide the function that another part of the body was designed to provide. There is an immense unity in this vast diversity. Unity in diversity. A body can have a limb that doesn't work and it can still survive. It can have one that's been amputated and it can still survive. But it doesn't function as well and it doesn't accomplish the level of work that it could if it was whole. That's just a reality. So I ask you, Do you think because you can't preach or aren't gifted with X, Y, or Z that the body can do without you? I'm here to correct that. It can't. Or do you think because you have gift X, Y, or Z that you don't need the rest of us? You've bought into a lie. You can't survive without us. You can't. Both of these comparisons, both of these perspectives, both of these lies are from the pit of hell. There's no other place for them to come from. Satan is the father of lies. Lies are what he does. It is who he is. He is the liar and the father of lies. Being Father's Day, I don't know that that's the right sort of thing. Anyway, uh, all right. You know, I'm I'm going to bring this to a close, but I a couple of things. 
as I get older, each day seems to bring new challenges. I wake up in the morning and some other part's aching. I can't even figure out why. But it hurts. Another morning or during the day, something else stops not functioning right. And it's like, what's happening? I, I think this is a cute little song. I like it. Here an ache, there an ache, everywhere an ache, ache. Old McDonald's falling apart. <laughs> E-I-E-I-O. That's how I feel sometimes. But you know what? It shouldn't surprise us. This life is passing away. And honestly, I, I really don't like the deterioration. And I'm fighting it, but it's still gaining ground on me. I don't seem to be able to find a way to push it back, and neither have you. But you know what? My role may change in this body of believers. It may. And I may sag a bit more on this side or that side, this cheek and that cheek, and I may sag and certainly won't be as handsome as I used to be, except maybe to my wife, I hope. But there is still functioning ability in this breaking down body. I still have a role to play. I have a weight to bear. I have a responsibility to fulfill. And so do you. 1 Corinthians 12 reminds us of this. We've looked at it. Every part is essential. I'm convinced. Another thing that convinces me that God is sovereign, right? If God has work for us to do in this body and more sanctification to complete in us, that's the only reason we're still here. There is no greater purpose. I have to confess to you, there have been times in my life when I have acted in ways that would make anyone who saw what I was doing think that I thought that I was better than, than others. Or that they thought that I acted in a way as though not to be connected to the body, as though I had no role to play. I repent of that, and I pray you will repent of that too. Now, Dan has said, in fact, he announced this in front of all the elders the other night. He said, Paul, one of the things you must do that you're not doing in your preaching is you must offer more invitations. All right, I get it. You're right, I'm not. So today, I'm making up for it. I have two. Two invitations for you. The first... I invite you to consider the claims of Christ. I can, without hesitation, no hesitation, no doubting, tell you that Christ has answers for every single question you have. Every single one. I've either asked them myself or I've had others ask me. There is no question about who Christ is that is not answerable. There is no truth about him that is not true. And I particularly, as well as I know, each of the other elders here today would be immensely blessed to show you the lies about Christ that you've been listening to and help you to see the truth about who Christ is. Beautiful, bright, light, loving Christ, the head 
And if you're a believer and not part of this local body, I ask you, why not? And I want you to answer that question in your own soul. I invite you to measure your answer to that question. I want you to answer or address your excuses against the passages we've looked at today. And tell me your excuses for not being part of this local body of Christ hold up against that scrutiny. I would be very happy to help you see how those excuses do not measure up. I will remind you <clears throat> in closing that all of the New Testament from Romans forward is written to local churches. What we've looked at today was written to the church in Ephesus. And what we've looked at lastly today was written to the church in Corinth. They are local bodies. And these words that talk about body are specific to those local bodies. Now, that does not take away from the fact that there is broader application. But when those words were pinned, they were pinned to local bodies of believers. So when Paul says, you can't be an eyeball that thinks you don't need the hand. And you can't think you're an eyeball that has no worth because you're not a hand or a foot. The local body of Christ expressed here as if these words were spoken and we substituted the words Corinthians and Ephesians with Eatonville. People, there is no time to waste. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to throw off all of the excuses that do not stand the scrutiny of Scripture, all of your preferences, all of your likes, all of your dislikes, all of your reasoning, and reason from the word of Christ. There aren't any other conclusions. Let's pray. Father God, you are preeminent. Push aside in our thinking, in our minds, anything that supplants that preeminence. Blind our eyes to anything except you, Christ, our head. Let us see the light of life in the eyes of Christ. Let us hear the truth spoken by your lips through your spirit to us. Let us hear as you hear the still small voice. Lord God, I don't pretend that I know or understand or comprehend all that you are teaching us about your body when you use that metaphor to teach us. Show us more, Lord God. Show us more. Through your spirit, cause us to act in accordance with your word. And this beautiful join together by the body and blood of Christ, people. In the name of Christ, amen.